Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Ta In, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking about Kristen Hong's new book, A Violent Peace, Race, U.S. Militarism, and Cultures of Democratization in Cold War Asia and Pacific. Kristen Hong is Associate Professor of University of California, Santa Cruz. Kristen, welcome to the show. Daim, thank you so much for inviting me to be in conversation with you. It's our pleasure to have you. Kristen, I wonder if we can begin the interview by um, telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I mean, my professional biography is just what you mentioned. I'm at UC Santa Cruz. I also serve as the director of the program in Critical Race and Ethnic Studies, I am the co-director and co-founder of a new Center for Racial Justice at UC Santa Cruz, along with Neda Atanasoski. And also, along with Neda Atanasoski, I co-edit the Journal of Critical Ethnic Studies. Um, Trying to, uh, let's see, beyond my, I'll say a little bit more, I'm also involved on the side with an organization called the Korea Policy Institute. And I've had a long association with this institute. It's a post 9-11 formation, and it's basically a public educational and research um, organization that has ties to grassroots organizations, both within the United States, as well as in South Korea. And um, one of the things that we have been doing is um, trying to promote um, a clear picture of um, people's interests in peace and in um, labor justice um, with regard to U.S. policy toward Korea. Recently, we have also sponsored and been involved 
um, in a teaching initiative to end the Korean War. And I'm happy to speak about this later. So one of the uh, things that I do, not just on the side, I should say, but something that actually actively informs my research and even my orientation toward the university is my anti-war activism. Mm. Yeah, that sounds really relevant and very important. And also, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate. So thank you so much again for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. (laughs) Yeah. Um, How did you come to write uh, your book? I mean, you talk about it uh, with your anti-war activism, but then, yeah, we would love to know more about how what came as your inspiration for the book. My inspiration for this book came from my first visit to South Korea in the 1990s. So I first visited South Korea in the mid-1990s. And this was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, it This is my first time that I had... It was the first time that I had seen... Uh, people's democracy, participatory democracy in action. Um, You know, democracy is a term that is much bandied about, but this was a time in which there were protests on a regular basis um, in a kind of four-college area within Seoul. And um, I, I, you know, it was um, so striking to me to see South Korean youth taking to the streets, getting tear gassed. And of course, we're in a very different historical moment in the United States in which this too has become a sort of routine experience for people who are participating in Black Lives Matter protests. Of course, the 1960s, you saw this as well in the United States. But this is something that was actively happening in South Korea when I first visited. Um, It was also the case that This was my first time um, visiting areas um, within South Korea that scholars refer to as camp towns in English. And um, seeing the impact and the imprint of the U.S. military and having no easy explanatory vocabulary for this kind of military stranglehold over South Korea. And instead, there being films, for example, in the early 1990s, there was a film called Falling Down. That was a big um, Hollywood blockbuster film. And um, it featured a scene of the, you know, sort of a a sort of anti-hero, the protagonist, a white man who was working uh, for the military industrial complex within the Los Angeles area, who gets laid off as the Cold War is starting to thaw, and then uh, finds himself going to um, a Korean immigrant-owned mom-and-pop store um, in you know um, the the South Los Angeles area. And um, going in there, there's a conversation that he has with the Korean immigrant store owner. And he basically, I mean, it's, you could see a lot of tropes in this film that uh, cast forward to our present Trump slash MAGA moment. And it's basically a disgruntled white man um, who feels 
the unseating of um, U.S. you know sort of global dominance and also white supremacy very acutely. And so he goes into this store and has an altercation with the store owner. And what he says to the Korean store owner is, do you know how much my country has done for your country? And so there's this notion that Koreans are indebted to the United States. And, you know, what I began to see um, when I was in South Korea and what I subsequently um, really discovered and, you know, during, th- through the course of my research in graduate school was exactly how inverted that narrative is. The United States, in the wake of World War II, had a war economy. Basically, World War II was the occasion for the United States to transform itself into a total war state. What that basically meant was that there was no clear distinction between um, a kind of frontline over there and a domestic arena over here. Industries that had previously been directed to producing tractors and automobiles and nails, you know, that you would hammer into a wall, all of a sudden were making um, tanks, were making bullets, were making munitions. And so the United States fundamentally transformed into a total war economy. That had a lot of repercussions domestically as well, which I can talk about later. But suffice it to say that in the wake of U.S. victory in World War II, in the two principal theaters of war, in the European theater and in the Pacific theater, the United States emerged maybe victorious, but it had an economic problem on its hand. It was structured as a war economy. And so, you know, even if you look at documents from around uh, the time that the Cold War was starting to dawn and with the uh, start of the U.S. um, interventionist war in Korea, generals and politicians were very, very point blank in stating that there had to be a Korea somewhere in the world. There had to be, and they also stated, Korea came along and saved us. So in other words, what was it that Korea did? Well, Korea served as the occasion for the United States to rehabilitate its war economy, even though a lot of this is opaque to Americans who regard the Korean War as a forgotten war. The fact of the matter is that Korea and that interventionist war, which is not over to this day, served as the occasion for the restructuration of U.S. power on the global stage. It transformed this economy into a permanent war economy. Permanent, the, the, a kind of militar, militarized economy requires permanent war around the world. 
it also served as the occasion and the rationale for the expansion of what Chalmers Johnson referred to as the U.S. Empire of Bases. It served as an occasion for the consolidation of the national security complex. It fortified and expanded and also served as um, the foundation for the military-industrial complex. These are all infrastructural legacies that we live with to this day that um, occurred as a result of a place that most American GIs at the dawning point of the Cold War um, had no idea where to locate on a global map. And so this is just to say that Korea, although out of sight and out of mind, although seemingly peripheral, although um, viewed as, you know, just an ally today, South Korea, and then the enemy being, you know, North Korea, um, even though there's very little of this weighs on um, the American, you know, sort of consciousness. The fact of the matter is that U.S. interventionist um, action and massive destruction in Korea really enabled um, U.S. dominance on the world stage in the wake of World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really. Um... I think it's really illuminating because um, if I may share my personal story as well, um, I I remember um, when I was very young, yeah, I I visited the states with my dad, who's like very anti-American, um, and then I remember I actually ran into like ran across this like so- soldier, um, I think GI soldier, and then I was basically telling her about how you know the U.S. basically messed Korea up, and then she told me, well, actually we helped, you know, we helped Korea to become a democratic country, um, and yeah, I guess uh, you know what you were saying about falling down reminds me of my personal experiences as well about and then I was educated in Canada I grew up in Canada and I also remember um, you know in Canadian history classes in high school we would learn about the good war right Um, and I think that's why I really appreciated how you deconstructed this idea of good war Um, and I I was also very fascinated by uh, your uh, how you discussed race and how a lot of people believe that in a, in a way World War II like contributed to a civil rights movement and for you know desegregation and you also mentioned in chapter one about how desegregation happened in um, Korean uh, like I guess like in Korean military bases um, but then at the same time you talk about how um uh, in a way this uh, also this kind of erased the fact that based on racial hierarchy all uh, these violence is being enacted upon racialized bodies um so i wonder um i wonder if you can talk more about how um yeah more about how the uh, I think you uh, call it convergence of um, biopolitics and geopolitics in your book, because I, I was very interested in how you were talking about the you know supposed blurring of color line actually um, increasing the efficiency of the war's necropolitical target. Yeah, yeah, you know, thank you 
also for that very elegant synoptic account of the theoretical and historical framework of my my book. And I wanted to say too, you know, one thing that I think so many of us realize who have studied the history of U.S.-Korea relations closely, it's not the case that democracy flourished in South Korea because of U.S. intervention. It's precisely despite U.S. intervention. And, you know, a figure who is much loved, like Jimmy Carter, you know, who had a very sort of humanitarian post-presidency and who received, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, You know, the thing that sullies his record is precisely the stance that his administration took on Kwangju. You know, so if you look at the history of U.S. intervention on the Korean Peninsula, it isn't um, as though so-called democracy promotion leads to the flourishing of democracy. Democracy promotion is precisely predicated upon the United States um, enfolding its sub-imperial allies into its own war posture, and it's predicated upon war. Um, And so back to the point that you were raising about the um, investment that my book has in rethinking a kind of post-war account of the liberalization of U.S. race relations. What I look at is um, how the dynamic of desegregation or racial integration actually has its origins not in Brown versus Board of Education, but actually in... um, U.S. desegregation, you know, and this is a sort of Truman um, basically authorizing this by executive order, but desegregation not happening um, in earnest until uh, the U.S. war in Korea. And so, you know, basically thinking about that as a very, um, very vexed origin for an origin for an account of racial liberalism in 2013 uh, then president barack obama stood at the you know in front of the korean war memorial um, on the national mall and there were a series of dignitaries from Park Geun-hye's government um, seated in front of him as well as korean war veterans and what he stated was that the Korean War was a victory. Um, you know, even though people typically don't say that and no historian would ever agree with that statement, um, he nonetheless stated that. And he said that the reason was, and he was, you know, in in front of this memorial that has, if you look at the National Park Service account of the Korean War Memorial, you realize that X number of those seven-foot steel statues are Asian American, X number are African American, X number are Chicano or Latino, X number are American Indian, X number are white, you know, so it's basically supposed to be a kind of multicultural rendering of soldiers on the battlefield. Um, And, you know, he said that if black, white, Asian, Latino, um, American Indian soldiers could fight shoulder to shoulder over there, 
surely they could do the same over here. So he was basically stating that the service of um, Korean War veterans led to the fluorescence of the civil rights movement, you know, basically arguing a kind of militarized, multicultural beginnings to um, the civil rights movement. And so in my book, what I'm interested in looking at is how at the same time that the United States, with an eye to the efficiency of its war machine, actually integrates, racially integrates its military ranks, it also does something very interesting, which is it expands with, um, it incorporates other kinds of sub-imperial allies also into its military. And so, you know, um, we can think in the post 9-11 era when George W. Bush used the term um, uh, coalition of the willing. And you can think through to an earlier historical moment, um, the Vietnam War era moment when Lyndon B. Johnson used a term like more flags, right? And so, and then you can think about how the Korean War, the, the sort of strategic use of the United Nations as a kind of banner to be able to argue uh, multilateral, multinational, and multiracial participation in U.S. wars of intervention, and to think about that in conjunction with military desegregation, and to understand that at the same time that the that the idea of indistinction, of the blurring of the color line is held up as a kind of liberal principle, right, of, of a kind of post-racial society. At the same time that that's happening, it's also the case that that principle of indistinction is fortifying U.S. military ranks and it's operative as well in the notion of the twinned notion of the war target, where there's an indistinction of man, woman, child, um, communist, non-communist, um, you know, where there is a kind of indistinction that's um, operative there, as well as what we see happening domestically, which is a kind of indistinction that is happening in the notion of the racial profile, right? And so. Um, that conflation of geopolitics and biopolitics, which you mentioned, really occurs in the notion of the target and the profile, which conflates racialized humanity with racialized terrain. And so to me, this is where um, I start to explore one of the key concepts of my, my book project, which was thinking about um, the fascism of U.S. war power, not the liberalism, but the fascism. Mm, yeah, yeah. And this reminds me of uh, how in chapter one, um, you analyzes Ralph Ellison's writing um, to show how um, policing of security uh, really shows that uh, fascism exists under the um, under the pretense or like the disguise of uh, U.S. democracy, as well as um, in chapter three, like um, I found this to be so fascinating. Uh, um, you talk about uh, me 
Ine Okubo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but then how she's like really celebrated for her depiction of incarcerated Japanese Americans, but then her role in secretization is really under-examined. And uh, you look at uh, making of citizen subject and how Japanese American and Japanese are conflated, um, therefore reintegrating, um, I guess, uh, Japan as like somehow like the receiver of, you know, U.S. democracy when um, actually uh, there is like war violence that is happening. Um, so, yeah, I I find it I found it really fascinating how, um, you know, the, you know, supposedly American subject and inclusion only come at the expense of, um, I guess, erasure or like elimination of racialized others because they're conflated at the same time. Um, so yeah, it's it was a it was a really wonderful analysis, and um, I I wonder uh, whether uh, you can talk more about you know how you analyze you know creative. Uh, like literary writing as well as photographs and uh, you know in academia um, writings has always been like more privileged but what were your thought processes and uh, analyzing these different things how you came across them and um, how you were able to formulate your ideas through these archives this episode is brought to you by shopify Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, you know, I mean, thank you again for engaging so closely with my work, you know, um, one of the things that I found so striking um, in the course of doing my research was how life opportunity for racialized subjects, um, subjects who were racially indistinguishable in many cases from the enemy, you know, how life opportunity took the form of securitization and how securitization is a form of racialization. It is a form of sifting between those that can be killed and those that can be allowed to live. But the conditions for being allowed to live, and you can see this in my chapter on the Korean War mascot, is precisely to don a kind of second skin in the form of the U.S. military uniform, right? And um, and so I was interested in when, in uh, some of Ralph Ellison's unknown writing. You know, he is so celebrated for having written Invisible Man. This is held out to be his magnum opus. Yet he states himself in a 1981 preface to that book, which was published um, circa the Korean War, you know, hot fighting era. He states in a later preface to that book that the inception for Invisible Man was a war novel in which a black airman was, um, you know, uh, taken captive within the European theater and incarcerated in a Nazi POW camp. 
And he, the Nazi POW camp isn't just sort of safely fascism over there. Instead, um, you know, during the war period, Ellison was very much a black radical. And um, what he and other black radicals as well as, um, you know, black mainstream newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier, what they understood all too well was that the black soldier fighting in a Jim Crow army wasn't just fighting racism and fascism over there, i.e. the Nazis, but fighting racism and fascism over here, i.e. the United States. And um, the term that he had, and of course, so this is just to say that his account of a black pilot um, held captive in a Nazi POW camp was an allegory for um, an, a, a sort of invisible war at home. So like there's this invisible war and, and he speaks about this. He says that from the betrayal of radical reconstruction up until the time that he's writing during the Korean War, that there has been this invisible war that has occurred, this sort of war that has occurred against Black people um, within the United States. And he refers to this as uh, this kind of conundrum, as democracy within the teeth of fascism. And so this became a very kind of evocative and um, thought-provoking way of understanding the kind of um, the kind of perverse sort of coding of militarized life possibility, of collusive life possibility as a form of democracy. And you could see throughout this book that the military uniform, the war front, um, atomic bomb blasted landscapes, all of this, the, the U.S. concentration camp, all of these kinds of militarized arenas that are fundamentally shot through by U.S. war power become the site of a kind of constrained democratic, quote unquote, possibility for racial subjects. And so this is, um, you know, this is a kind of through line for the book as a whole. You mentioned my use of photographs. um, And one thing that I have been doing as a kind of perverse hobby over the past almost two decades is that I have been collecting GI photographs and photo albums of um, the U.S. warfront, principally in Korea, but also in other areas. And, um, you know, it's really hard to know how to approach these kinds of materials. Um, You know, when you think about, and, you know, I'm not I don't want to overgeneralize here, but at least speaking for my own family, you know, my own family, there are members of my family who lived through profound, life-altering, world-deforming, destroying, and reshaping um, U.S. war violence. And yet 
there, we don't have a documentary record of any of that. And uh, by contrast, U.S. GIs often had small Kodak cameras. And in fact, you know, um, this uh, war comics artist named Bill Hume, um, he stated that the camera, the portable camera was a part of the GI's uniform. It was so ubiquitous that so many of them had it. So they were in that way, sort of individual documentarians. um, And you didn't even need to have embedded journalists in terms of the sort of skewed perspective that they had um, in terms of what they documented. But I was very interested in thinking about this documentary trove that stood in such stark contrast to the sort of document poor um, personal archive of my own family. And um, through the course of collecting these um, albums and these photos, I saw again and again, you know, Koreans would pop up, you know, in these photographs. And in many cases, they would pop up as houseboys or as, as mascots. And here I was really interested, not just in the donning of the U.S. military uniform in miniature, like miniature scaled uh, sizes, um, uh, you know, these mascots wearing these uniforms, but I was also interested to see the very sort of uncomfortable relationality between, um, or at least uncomfortable for me, um, uh, seeing the kind of relationality between mascots and uh, members of these military, um, these American military units. And to realize that, you know, as Sharon Holland says, that um, racism fundamentally structures the erotic. And to see this at play in a lot of these photographs as well. Um, But also trying to think about um, what kind of reading practice should we have toward these kinds of documents. Yeah, well, thank you so much. That's just raised so many important issues from, in a way, the limitation of scholarship, because um, the archive that's most visible is also the one that is created by power in this position, um, GI soldiers, while the common people's lives are undocumented and their silences in scholarship in a way is invalidated, especially considering how, um, you know, we privilege in scholarship like writing and then, you know, photos are now used more, but then, you know, what happens when um, people don't have documentation and yeah, um, I think uh, you talk about how, oh, you know, you before visit. Before you go on, could I just interject and say one thing? Oh. You know, that you know, this goes to your own work that you had previously done before um, you came to your doctoral studies at UCLA. And I know that what you looked at was you looked at the experience of uh, women villagers during the hot fighting period of the Korean War, which as you know, you and I and so many other Koreans understand is a war that has never been concluded with a peace agreement of any kind. And, you know, um, some years ago, I had the opportunity, I think it was back in 2011, I had the opportunity to um, interview um, one of the standing commissioners of the South Korean Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, 
uh, Kim Dong Chun, and I asked him about um, uh, the centrality of sexual violence um, during the hot fighting period, you know, the, the battle phase of the Korean War, and the degree to which the TRCK focused on that. And he said that that was a lar- an oversight of the TRCK. And it was really interesting to talk to Charlie Hanley, who was one of the three AP reporters along with Martha Mendoza and um, also, um, uh, forgive me, um, um, the New York Times reporter, uh, Che Sang-hoon. Um, it was really interesting to talk to him about his book, uh, The Bridge Over Nogunri, you know, and to ask him about this. And, you know, one of the, um, he interviewed someone who was an adult, who was a, probably at that time, older, middle age, but was a child during the time of that atrocity. And um, this child spoke about peering through the windows of one of the homes in the village and seeing um, one of the women villagers being raped by USGIs. And, um, you know, what was interesting to the AP team, I mean, aside from being horrified by this tale, um, was that they, they said, well, we've interviewed everyone. And, you know, this story has never come up. And um, what uh, the, the Korean man who had been a boy said was, well, you have spoken to this woman, you know, but um, she hasn't shared her story. And so realizing that there are lots of gaps and lots of structuring omissions and that when those gaps and omissions then get reproduced in scholarly accounts, how much is left out of our understanding of the biopolitical nature of war violence? And as you and I also know, it's also been a very interesting thing to realize that um, you know there's this sort of distinction made between um, the so-called comfort woman and then um, the the sort of camp town prostitute. And the, the distinction is not just that one was under um, Japanese imperial rule and the other one was under sort of U.S., you know, um, sort of, you know, what you could also call U.S. imperial, you know, sort of control. And um, but it's it's that the distinction is one of supposed vol- voluntary uh, the voluntary nature of uh, the camp town prostitute that she, um, you know, may have been poor and had a series of sort of structural um, circumstances um, militating against her uh, abundance or variety of life choices, yet she chose this life path. So that, that's been the sort of received narrative. But, you know, um, what happened was in recent years, um, the legal team for uh, camp town prostitutes who have been waging a battle in the South Korean courts about the human rights violation that the South Korean government perpetrated in jointly administering with the United States the entire camp town prostitution system. Um, that uh, that legal team they found in the Library of Congress a document that indicated the South Korean government referred to 
these camp town prostitutes in their earliest um, manifestation as wianbu. They use the same term as comfort woman. And so, you know, there are definitely differences within the systems. There are historical distinctions to be made, but there's a lot of structural similarity that really does need to be discussed more fully. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it reminds me of um, Catherine Moon's work as well um, about Kijitun on Camp Town um, and how she basically says that Camp Town is a corporation. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a corporation that is like created by the U.S. and also South Korea for the benefit. And then the I. And then the idea of choice as well, um, you know, you obviously like, uh, it's like not a, I guess the idea of agency and choice is so tricky in a way because within the structure, within the economic and like structure and pressure, um, some people might have said they had a choice, but at the same time, do you really um, in that structure? Like, I yeah, I think that's a very important. And yeah, I think to go back about the Korean War, uh, one of the reasons why I jumped from, you know, looking at women's experiences uh, in the villages to domestic workers is because um, a lot of women uh, that I interviewed um, talk about becoming domestic worker. They were just so ubiquitous um, because of the economic um, situation at the time, because of the poverty and how they were, you know, at the danger of, you know, like sexual assault from the employer. So this like yeah yeah I think and that how, connection yeah. is very interesting to think about um you know to think about militarized prostitution and then to think about domestic labor and to realize too that um you know sort of militarized sex sexual labor and as well as like the labor of mascots, the labor of houseboys, the labor of um, colonial conscripts, you know, um, uh, whether or not, you know, that's too dated of a term to apply to U.S. military empire. But to understand that all of these different racialized figures that are unfolded into the U.S. war machine play a reproductive function relative to that war machine. Their labor is essential to the reproduction of U.S. militarism. And to understand that that labor has often been racialized um, colonial labor. Mm, yeah, exactly. And then I guess the complicity of South Korea as well and the South Korean men, um, I think is also such an important um, part of this discussion because I guess, you know, white supremacy project, uh, you know, it is a project that is carried on by different actors in history. And um, you know, as much as um, the U.S. military um, is to be held responsible, I think it's yeah definitely important to think about. Hmm, but then you know, how about the uh, domestic violences? You know that is happening. Um, you know the I guess like the South Korean government and um, the patriarchal system. It also uh, contributes to that as well to that like power yeah. dynamic. Yeah, I think that's an yeah. interesting point. You know in. The book, I look at how, um, you know, people who are, you know, scholars of, you know, Asian area studies scholars who are looking at Japan during 
the occupation period, write about a moment that's referred to as reverse course. So if at first, you know, when, you know, MacArthur lands at Atsugi Airfield and, you know, what have you, um, you know, the communists um, are released from uh, Japanese prisons, right? You know, like if they're released, then the reverse course, which signals um, a shift that has to do with the cold, dawning Cold War order, um, sees these people precisely who were released being rounded up again and incarcerated. And so that reverse course plays out on a larger regional scale in terms of U.S. anti-communist um, uh you know, anti-communist counterinsurgencies throughout the region. And so you see basically um, what ends up, what happens all throughout the region, and I focus on uh, the Philippines, is basically those figures that collaborated with Japan, far from being um, prosecuted for that collusion, instead are um, oftentimes lifted to positions of executive authority within the nation, you know, and that's true in South Korea, that's true in any number of places throughout Asia and the Pacific, that those who, who collaborated are then lifted into positions of power um, and rehabilitated under a dawning Pax Americana anti-communist order. And you see the impact of that rehabilitation. Um, it saturates the societies, the post-war societies of different locations, but the, the entanglement is sub-imperial in nature. And, you know, there are scholars and activists who have said, for example, with regard to Ferdinand Marcos, that Washington um, supplied the bullets and Marcos held the gun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that definitely reminds me of, um, you know, your chapter in Chapter 5 about uh, U.S. counterinsurgency actually eroding decolonization movement and um, participatory democracy that you also um, spoke of earlier. Um, and then I guess you um, analyze uh, Carlos Bulosan's work um, in Chapter 5 about how it's, in a way, it's like an effort to counter the erasure and also assert the last word about revolutionary struggle. Um, and yeah, it's like connection to Korea and decolonization is also so in interesting as well. This, um, I guess, like label of communism. And in my own research, too, I realized that, you know, a lot of villagers, you know, wouldn't like didn't identify themselves as um, communists. But then at the same time, you know, like anything that was seen as like threatening would have to be immediately eliminated. And then, yeah, I think it goes back to, you know, your book's point about Target as well and how uh, it's like very widespread reach. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was interested in thinking through a kind of twinned trajectory and it's not even, these are not parallel tracks. These are interoperable tracks, but basically the United States during World War II um, launched um, a an investigation of, you know, basically spies and, you know, sort of 
you know, the fear of domestic spies. So if you have the entire, if the war front and the domestic front are um, blurred and there's no distinction between one and the other, then that means that your enemies could be right there at your back door. And so from the pr- perspective of, of the national security state, you know, um, the, the threats to subversion, including um, racial uh, disaffection during a time that the, the sort of the country is Jim Crow. These are all viewed like, you know, if, if you are disaffected because you are, um, you know, victimized by white supremacy, then you're potentially an enemy of the state. You know, I mean, and, you know, basically what happens during this time is that um, the federal government launches through the FBI um, a survey called Racial Conditions um, in the United States or RACON. And RACON basically aims to route out subversion in um, what are viewed to be communist circles, what are viewed to be um, black civil rights circles, what are viewed to be um, uh, principally Japanese, but other Asian sort of um, organizing spaces in the United States. And, you know, in my book, I suggest that there is a connection between RACON and what comes um, as COINTELPRO. You know, so COINTELPRO being really a war against people domestically. And then to also realize that the United States waged wars of racial counterintelligence. You know, the, the Korean War, the United States uses racial counterintelligence. It does during the Vietnam War. It does in its counterinsurgencies um, in Asia throughout the Cold War period. You know, the United States draws up white lists gray lists, blacklists, that all presupposes um, a kind of, quote unquote, like native informant. It requires the native informant. And so all of this is based upon structures of collusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is making me think about um, the academia as well. And then um, the creation of East Asian studies. Uh, I mean, not just East Asian studies, but area studies in the first place to serve a military industrial complex. Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's such an interesting point. You know, this is um, mm-hmm. even when you think about uh Asian area studies as a distinctively Cold War formation, even if it has um, origins within Orientalism, you know, this is a subsidized field. The government subsidizes this actively throughout the Cold War. So much money goes to it. Uh, Funding goes to this. And you realize that um, the figure of... um, the native informant also looms within um, Asian area studies and, you know, but, but in, in sort of curious ways. So, you know, this is um, something that Naoki Sakai speaks about in his own work. He says that, you know, academia is sort of bifurcated in its structure of how it understands differential forms of humanity. And you can understand these as um, related along a kind of racial hierarchy or placed differently on a racial hierarchy. And he says that there's anthropos. And you, of course, can understand that as anthropology, ethnic studies, et cetera, but also area studies. Um, you know, anthropos is that um, subject who has studied. It's the object to be studied, maybe not a subject, the object to be studied. 
uh, versus humanitas. And humanitas is the subject that knows. And so you could see both forms of subjectivity racially coded operative in a field like Asian area studies. And you could also see it, um, you know, like Asian area studies. I mentioned Chalmers Johnson before. Chalmers Johnson was a figure who started off in a kind of um, collusion along intelligence lines working for the CIA um, as a Japanist and then um, has a kind of an awakening in Okinawa in the 1990s uh, when, you know, there's a series of, of rapes that occur. And um, realizes, you know, becomes a sort of anti-imperialist scholar. And, you know, um, but that speaks also to the kind of nature of collusion along intelligence lines um, with the national security state. And it's precisely against that collusion that a field like critical Asian studies asserts its difference. It says we realize our complicity, the complicity of our field to um, the U.S. war machine, to a kind of um, posture of exploitation of um, the peoples of, of Asia. And we declare um, our, our, uh, you know, our critique of, of that kind of collusion. Um, but, you know, I think that that's also where it's important to realize that um, ethnic studies as a field, although it forms at the same time as critical Asian studies, and although both fields form um, out of a critique of U.S. war violence in Vietnam and the ways in which um, academically sourced knowledges are used to fortify the U.S. war machine, um, it's the case that those fields also... um, are quite different. And I think that it's very interesting that ethnic studies is a field that in its origins, I'm not talking about its institutionalized formation, but in its uh, political origins was aimed at the liberation of people and um, to understand that as being a very sort of crucial distinction between area studies as a field formation and ethnic studies as a field formation. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for this uh, really like wonderful like contribution and like um I think like for me especially uh who wants to be in this field that like I really uh yeah I just like I don't know how to express my appreciation of like what you're doing and like especially like talking about um you know how the social movement in a way was a genesis of the field and like trying to blur social movement in academia but I've taken up yeah a lot of your time um so I wanted to um, ask the final question of NBN, um, and that is, uh, what are you currently working on? So, Diane, thank you so much for for uh, your conversation today and for reaching out to me. Um, I'm happy to speak about my um, current work. Um, I, I, uh, the work that I have been involved in is um, I'm part of a collective, um, a teaching initiative collective. Uh, it's the Ending the Korean War Collective. And um, we had um, a victory earlier this year. The Association for Asian American Studies 
um, passed our resolution calling for a decolonizing end to the Korean War. Um, Some of us who are part of this collective also were part of something called the Alliance of Scholars Concerned About Korea. And we had um, over a decade ago launched a three-year teaching initiative calling for a decolonizing end to the Korean War. We are reanimating that along somewhat different lines, critically different lines this time. Um, And what we are working on uh, as a collective is a public syllabus so that people who are um, activists, people who are uh, working on aspects of Korea who are scholars, they could teach this. They can teach this in activist settings and academic settings. So we're working on a public syllabus, uh, syllabus project, and we're also working on other aspects of the teaching initiative. Um, the other thing that I have in the wings, um, I've published uh, a great deal on North Korea, and that was scholarship that didn't come from any training in Asian studies, but came from my, uh, really, the inception of it was my activist work, uh, working to end the Korean War. The Korean War, and um, so I have another book. I have several articles already completed that have been published in various journals, critical Asian studies, positions, and other places um, on North Korea and the Korean War, and that is the subject of my second book project. And there too, I will look at the. Um, at the kind of political work of Black radical organizations like the Civil Rights Congress that had an incredibly penetrating critique of what was, um, you know, sort of pejoratively called a po- U.S. police action in Korea, but the Civil Rights Congress understood that so-called police action in Korea um, in conjunction with a rising police state and police brutality Um, domestically. And so um, part of my book will look at that particular convergence. Um, Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, That sounds amazing. And I would love to read your articles. Um, Yeah. On uh, North Korea, like it's yeah, and then I just love how you're tying in, um, you know, the works of a Black civil rights activist and really like blurring the disciplinary boundaries as well. Uh, but then thank you so much for uh, being in this podcast. I learned a lot and it was really amazing to talk to you. It was such a pleasure. Let's definitely yeah. stay in touch, Diane. Yeah, let's definitely stay in touch. Thank you.